Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, dad. Hello, everybody. Just before we start the interview of Constance Towers, I just want to remind everybody that Ms. Towers, Jennifer Savage, Jeremy Ambler, and Laura Cayouette, all people either you're going to hear her interview or have heard her interviews in the past episodes, are going to be at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention this September 15th through the 17th, 2022, Thursday through Saturday. I hope everybody that has a chance to come out there and meet them. It's going to be a fun time. And then any questions I didn't ask them, you can feel free to ask them or get your picture with them or get their autograph. And again, there's a lot of other people at the convention too, which Martin Grams and I talked about in our preview episode, which is a few episodes prior to the interviews. So hope everybody takes time to listen to those to prep for the convention or you can listen to them on your way home from the convention or if you sadly couldn't make it to the convention you can get a feel for what it would have been like if you would have been there also miss Cayouette laura was generous enough to give us a coupon for listeners to get 20 percent off all her writing products uh, if you go to lauracayouette.com and use the coupon code die cast podcast that's die cast podcast all uppercase and the die and the cast are separate words and if you are driving and can't write this down or whatever feel free to go to our facebook page or go to the notes that the episode has wherever you're listening to this from on the podcast form and it'll be there too and then um, get whatever books you want to enjoy and just before we start the interview with miss towers here's a little promo for a Miss Cayouette, and we're going to go right into the interview after that, and I hope everybody enjoys it. Talk to you after the interview. Bye. Hi, I'm Laura Cayouette, an actor for over 25 years, but I'm best known as Leonardo DiCaprio's sister in Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. I'm also the author of eight books, and I'd love to tell you how I went from writing one book in 20 years to five books in four years. And my six-video immersive creating characters course will help you create a whole cast of three-dimensional characters to move your stories forward and bring your ideas to life. Find out more on my website, laracayouette.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. This is Steve, and today I'm going to be joined by Constant Towers, a star of film, stage, radio, TV. She's done practically everything um, she, a lot of you might remember her from the horse soldiers with John Wayne or the King and I with Yul Brenner or playing the villainous in general hospital for many, many years. Welcome to the show, Ms. Towers. Well, thank you so much, Steve. I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, I'm delighted to have you on the show too. And this is something that's I've been looking forward to talking with you for a while when I found out there's a possibility of interviewing, interviewing you. And I want to thank your agent, Bud Burden Moss, for helping to set this all up. He's a wonderful gentleman. Oh, he is. You should talk to him someday. He's written two or three books, and he's just full of wonderful stories about people like Rita Hayworth and stars. And he had Tom Bosley on Happy Days. And he's, he's a lot of fun, so you should have him on, too. Well, I think you, you must have read our minds because he and I are going to do an interview together later on this month, and it'll come out probably in Oh, October. good. So, yes. 
for listeners, you got to tease, you know, Bud Burden Moss will be on and you already heard a little bit of his resume and it's going to be wonderful to talk with. Well, he is, and he's the best agent in the world. He's now kind of graduated to being called my manager, but he was also my husband, John Gavin, when he was working in films. Bud was his agent, and he was ruthless. He got you the part, but he never wanted to know the story <laughs> that led up to it because he would he would bow to nothing, and he finally got you the name of the producer on the dotted line and he got you the part. So he was, he's, he's been wonderful and everybody who ever worked with him just loved him to death. And I've, I've talked to him and setting up this interview and um, I can't wait to to sit sit down with him over the phone. Like we're doing now and and having an in-depth interview with him. And I think listeners are going to find it interesting perspective from the agent side, but also he grew up in old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, his first book, he titled it, and all I got was 10%. And I think that is a very interesting perspective because you hear these huge figures that, you know, stars get for various roles. And there is that person who is responsible for getting it, for setting it up, for taking care of you. And then you think they only got 10% of that. Of course, if it's twenty million, that's not bad. Well, it's not. It's, yeah, it's not bad to pay, you know, but but if you have <laughs> enough people that you're representing, it all adds up. And um, oh, sure. But one of the things I want to talk about you, you've had, like I said, a prolific career. I mean, you started in um, Whitefish, Montana, and I think what talent scouts found you in first grade. Well, it was a little. I was I was in the first grade. And my, fortunately, my grandmother, who graduated from college in Lincoln, Nebraska, in 1908, and for a woman to graduate from college in those years was extraordinary, and she was wonderful. And she met my grandfather, fell in love with him, and he took her to this place called Whitefish, Montana. So there was this lady with all this talent and in a tiny little railroad town. And so she had two granddaughters that she doted on, and she insisted, when we could barely open our mouths, that we learn what a book was, and she would read to us, and then she insisted that we learn to read. So I was one of the few children in my first-grade class who really was pretty good at, at reading. And so these producers came to my little school and they had a radio show and they asked if anyone could read and I put my hand up and I said I can do that and they took me out in the hallway and had me read a page or two of the script and I could get my way through it well enough that they hired me and I played the part of a little boy and I had to literally you know you always hear the stories about someone having stood on an apple box well, I was literally, I don't know if it was an apple box, but it was a box. And I was standing on that in order to get up the microphone. And I played the part of a little boy on a radio show for about three years. I always laugh and say that I lost the part when my voice changed. But that's not true. But anyway, we won a lot of awards in the Northwest uh, area for this radio show. And so that was my first taste of, of acting. 
And, and I, I was lucky they came. They came and found me. I mean, it's it's like a story you just don't hear about. Like you're in school, and the next thing you know, there's a knock at the door, and they come in. It's like, can anybody here read? You put your hand up, and boom, you're you're on a radio I show. Know. <laughs> and there you are. It's like the story about Lana Turner. She was supposed to be sitting at at the drugstore counter on a stool in a beautiful tight knitting sweater, and an agent walked in and said, "You're going to be a star." So. I guess those things do happen. Well, they do. And, and then, from my understanding, your parents kept you from going to Hollywood because they wanted to, um, one of the studios wanted to sign you when you were 11, but they did not let you sign to go to Hollywood. Well, actually, my parents were so supportive. And everything that anybody could ever want in parents who loved you and wanted you to succeed at whatever your passion was, and they knew that my passion was, I mean, I was starting this thing, but not really yet. And they took my sister, who was a champion swimmer, to Los Angeles from Montana to swim in an AAU meet. And uh, so I accompanied them. And while there, a friend of theirs worked for Paramount Pictures, and he had called Paramount Pictures, the home office, and said, I think you should see this little girl when she comes down. So they made an appointment for me. And this is all without agents or anything. And I went in and met all of them. And I stood in what I thought was a glass box and sang. And they finally, when they sat down with them and with my mother, and they wanted to know if I would be interested in, in coming there, coming here to California. And, uh, becoming a movie star and I looked at them and I said oh no I'm not the least bit interested in that I want to be an opera star mm. and so then they looked at my beautiful mother and said well how about you would you like to come <laughs> but uh, I turned it down the first time it was offered to me later I thought god I was crazy I had an opportunity that people come here and they wait and wait for and hope for and it never happens and it happened for me, but I had other plans. So that was the beginning of what I was looking forward to, some kind of career. And at that time, because I was starting to sing and starting to study, uh, I really had dreams of going to the Metropolitan Opera rather than Paramount Pictures. And it's amazing how at a young age, you know, you kind of you, you, you kind of knew, I'm going to go this path. And it ended up, mm-hmm. that eventually led you to Hollywood again anyway. I mean, in a long roundabout yeah. way, but you were probably way more prepared for everything going in because you were an adult then, you, you're mature. And a lot of times you hear, I've interviewed a lot of child actors and actresses, and, uh, and some of their stories are really good, and some of the stories are not as good. And I think you probably were oh, that's right. good to avoid uh, a lot of that. It probably helped your career better. Oh, I think so. And I had already been to Juilliard School of Music, and I had had been to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. So at least I knew what upstage, downstage, or the left of the camera, or right of the camera, those terms I knew a little bit about. I had some basic foundation in that particular performing art. So it was very helpful to wait. And as you say, then I was 
hopefully a little more mature, and uh, but still having such wonderful parents. They were there all the way and supporting me and anxious for me just to do the thing that made me happy, which made me very lucky. You're extremely lucky because I know sometimes the parents will push the child to do certain things, and I think the best parents mm-hmm. are the ones that, like yours did, if you're interested in it, they would support you, and if you weren't interested in it, they're like, well, you know. Exactly. Not at this time? Yeah. Yeah, that's what they did with my sister, too, that they found the best swimming coach for her, made sure that she had every opportunity to pursue that, and she really did excel at swimming long distance, and uh, she developed a murmur in her heart, which impaired her ability to follow that dream, Mm. but... um, they certainly made it all possible for her. So they were terrific. My sister and I have always said, if, you know, today people say, well, you know, I, I have all of these problems because of my parents and the way I was raised. And uh, if only I'd had a happy home, uh, things would have been different. Well, my, we both said we can't complain about anything. Whatever's wrong with us is our own fault because we come from a totally functional family. And we did. So we we couldn't complain about anything. If anything was wrong, it was our fault. And, that, and that's the great thing about when you have such a, you know, a loving structure built in with the, mm-hmm. the, the nucleus where, you know, you, you and your sister really obviously cared about each other and your parents did. I mean, it's yeah, it works out nice. Yeah, it makes a big difference. Yeah. So what got you back into... Hollywood, in a sense, because you want you want all you were like we like I said you went to Juilliard, you studied music there. Mm-hmm. You're in the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. I mean, you even studied yeah. singing with Beverly Park Johnson. <laughs> I know she did. Beverly was Beverly was the top teacher in New York for opera stars, and uh, Renee Fleming uh, certainly is is a proud product of her teaching. So she was wonderful, and even when I was doing Broadway shows, she was right there helping me, which was, I just, I've been so lucky in my life and in my career that I have really not had to struggle as hard as a lot of people have. I feel very fortunate about that, but the way I I got to Hollywood was an agent happened to see me in a little play at the Academy, at the American Academy. And we were walking down Fifth Avenue and uh, talking, and a man came up to us at about 56th Street and Fifth Avenue, just a block away from the St. Regis Hotel on Manhattan. And he came up and knew the agent, and he said, I like the way she looks. Can she sing? And so the agent said, yeah, she, she can sing. And so he said, okay, you want to open at the St. Regis in the Masonette in five weeks. And I didn't even know what the Masonette was, but it was explained to me that it was a beautiful little performance room and at that time a cabaret setting. And so I said, sure, I can do that. And so I did. And I had no idea that I was putting myself in front of New York critics, all the newspapers were going to review it. Uh, New Yorker magazine reviewed it. And I just borrowed a dress from somebody 
and we found a, a wonderful man, John Gregory, who was the producer, and he put a group of songs together and made it seem like a show. And I did it, and the opening night of that show in the Masonette at the St. Regis was the casting director of Columbia Pictures, Max Arno. And Max came back afterward and said, I'd like to take you to Hollywood. I'd like you to meet, meet Harry Cohn, who happens to own Columbia Pictures. And he said, I'd like him to see you perform. So they, when I finished my engagement in New York, they flew me to California. And I went to Harry Cohn's office at Columbia Pictures. And they even had my little borrowed dress and and my accompanist were there so that I could show him how I looked when I was performing and sing for him. And he had a young man who he wanted me to read a scene with. So he wanted to see if I could act. And the young man's name happened to be Jack Lemon. And so I in my even my audition for Harry Cohn. I got one of the best actors in Hollywood. And so Jack Lemon was darling and dear and became a friend. And we loved each other until the day he died. And he, so he acted with me in the scene. And then afterward, Mr. Cohn had me sing. So I sang with my accompanist. And then after that, he said, okay, I'll offer you a contract. So I had a contract with Columbia Pictures that brought me from New York to California. I was at Columbia Pictures and they sent me every day for singing lessons and dancing lessons and dramatic lessons and really finished my my polishing of my learning that I'd had at the American Academy and, and at Juilliard. And I made one film that year and that film was called Bring Your Smile Along and I just happened to get a writer at the studio who wanted to become a director. So he wrote this script and then he, this was his first directorial effort. And so I, I went into this, not knowing who he was. And later it was known then that it was Blake Edwards, who's responsible for all the Pink Panther movies and uh, breakfast at Tiffany's. And I could go on and, List all the films that he went on to direct, and he married Julie Andrews. He was Julie Andrews. Yeah, legend. And uh, so I, I got lucky even there. I mean, look how people have to wish and hope and pray and scratch and practically kill for those opportunities, and they just happened. So I was there for a year, made the one movie, and being young and impetuous and impatient. I wanted to go back and keep performing. So I went to Mr. Cohn and asked him to please release me from my contract, that I wanted to go back to New York, that the Plaza Hotel in New York wanted me to come and sing, and that I wanted to pursue my my New York career. And so Mr. Cohn sat and listened to me, and he finally said, okay, I'll let you go. And I thanked him as I walked out the door, and he said, what do you mean, thank you? What are you thanking me for? And I said, well, if you'd had any plans for me, you wouldn't have let me go. So thank you. So I'm not sitting here wasting my time. I can go do what I really want to do. 
So even that was fortunate. And I went back to New York and performed at the Plaza Hotel in the Persian Room, which was the epitome of cabaret rooms. And that night, a producer of the opening night, a producer, Martin Racken, who had a movie called The Horse Soldiers, and he came to me and said, I'd like to take you back to Hollywood. I'd like you to meet John Ford, who was the top, one of the top directors in Hollywood at that time. He did, certainly directed The Quiet Man, which everybody has seen with John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara. And he, of course, was Irish and proud of being Irish. Yeah. And I was Irish, so that helped. But anyway, so then that's how the horse soldiers happened. So I've been very lucky. That, that's just amazing to hear, like, the backstory of how all these things happen. I mean, you, you go to, to your first reading, and it's Jack Lemon. Of all, I'm just, I'm just shocked know. with that. I'm like, Jack Lemon, of all the people, you, 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 it's just a blessing there because you're getting somebody who reacts so well to what you're giving, and then mm-hmm. it's, you know, you, it had to make it so much more comfortable for you to have somebody that is such a good receiver for what you're Oh, and he was professional, and he was sweet, and he was wonderful, friendly. He put me at ease. I mean, I couldn't have asked for a greater angel to be in that meeting with me than Jack Lemon. I think the the stars aligned perfectly for you at that mm-hmm. particular. I mean, a, a multiple times. <laughs> yeah, I've been very, very fortunate in my life and in my career. Now, with bring I mean, I've made a few zigs when they should have been zags, which we all do. And there's certainly been mistakes along the way. But basically, I've just had just the most wonderful, fortunate, happy life. And that, that's the great thing is is that you, you make decisions and it's like, well, I could have done this or this, but this is the path I took. And you're not, you're not, you don't seem to be the person that dwells too much about the other things because everything worked out so well. This way, I mean, right. if you would have maybe chose to go left instead of right, it might be a different story. Exactly. Yeah, you'll never know. So I'm a great believer in in fate, and certainly and in karma, and being in the right place at the right time, being prepared, which I think is so important. So I've been a, a student all my life, trying to make it better, so that when an opportunity did present itself, that I was ready for it. Now, you talk, you brought up the horse soldiers. One of my all-time favorite directors. I mean, if, if I had to make a list of five, my five favorite directors, he would be on there. And you can argue, like, you know, what mood you're in, wh- which way you would place who, where, when. But John mm-hmm. Ford, I mean, Mr. Ford, I mean, what was it like, you know, going there and um, I, I, doing your uh, – interview interview with him to, to get the role for the movie? Well, he was, you know, of course he was overwhelming. He was so important and, uh, and a bit of a character. He had a patch over his eye, a black patch. His eye, he had hurt it. He'd had cataract surgery and went out in the sun, sunshine too soon. So he had permanently injured his eyes. So he had a black patch. And he chewed on the hanky, so he had this big white handkerchief that he always chewed on. And uh, it was it was an awesome interview, I must say. 
but the fact that I was Irish, my whole family, my father was born in Ireland in, 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 um, God, can't remember the name of the county. My father was born. <laughs> I'll remember it in a minute. He was born in a place called Drumcondra, which is, uh, was outside of Dublin. And the whole family came from County Cork. And, uh, so we had that to talk about. And then we talked about, you know, what I had done in my career. And then he asked me a question that I really hadn't expected. And he asked me, he said, do you ride side saddle? And I didn't know what that meant. And I said, well, of course I do. <laughs> and he said, well, we'll find out tomorrow morning. I want you to go in the valley to my ranch and the stuntman will be there and we'll have a side saddle. And you can show us how well you can ride that side saddle. Well, my grandfather in Montana had bought a horse for me and a horse for my sister. And he said, when you learn to ride this horse without a saddle, then I'll buy you a saddle. So I had learned to ride a horse in the beginning without a saddle, hmm. and which was probably the greatest thing that ever happened. So I walked out of that interview thinking, what have I done to myself? I just committed myself to show them how good I am tomorrow morning. I don't even know what it looks like. So I went to the yellow pages in the phone book, which we had phone books then, and we had yellow pages. <laughs> and I, I looked up in the yellow pages, side saddled and training and so on, and I found a woman uh, on Riverside Drive uh, here in Los Angeles, and I called her, and I explained to her exactly what I had done, and she laughed, and she said, okay, come on over. I can help you. So I went over to her stable. She put me on a side saddle, and we worked for about eight hours that day. She, she taught me how to mount, how to dismount, how to ride side saddle, because you'll know it has a, a horn on the side of the saddle, so you don't sit astride a horse. Mm-hmm. You hook your your leg around so your knee is sort of hooked onto this this uh, horn that's on the side of the saddle, and that's how you ride because that was considered the ladylike thing back in the Civil War days uh, for a woman to do, not to ride astride. So she taught me all of this, and I went home. I was exhausted. I hurt every muscle, every piece of my body was hurting. And the next morning, I went out to his ranch, and the stuntmen were there. And fortunately, the horse was a movie horse. So the horse understood any orders they gave me better than I did. And I mounted and dismounted and did all of my things and little figure eights and so on. And I acted like I really knew what I was doing. And I fooled them. So I got the part. And uh, I was playing the part, the role of Hannah Hunter, who was a Southern belle, and uh, I was in my plantation estate when John Wayne and William Holden, who for some young people today, I say those names, they don't know who they are. But anyway, these big movie stars, but they rode in and they they were Yankees, and I was a Southerner. So... Then they took me on this horse ride, which is why it was so important that I could ride side saddle because that was what she had to do for probably 80% of the film. So anyway, the first day of, of shooting, we were in a place called Natchitoches, Louisiana, 
which is right near Shreveport. And so I got on set and a big box was presented to me with a big bow on top. And it was from John Wayne and William Holden and John Ford. And I unwrapped the bow, opened the box, and this was to welcome me to the filming and so on. And I looked inside. There were Band-Aids. There were all kinds of salves, things for pain, for, for saddle blisters and saddle sores and things. And so they just sat there and smiled at me. And they realized that I hadn't known how to ride that horse, that I was, I had all kinds of blisters and saddle sores, and I needed every bit of the equipment and salves and stuff that was, medical help that was in that box. But it was a great laugh and a great way to start the, the film. So that was a, that was a, a fun welcoming, and every bit of that filming was that kind of an experience. But working with John Ford was, an experience in itself because he was a perfectionist and that's certainly how he became the important person in film history. In years to come, they will list, you know, the, the best movie directors of all time. He will always be up there, one or two or three, top of the list of the best film directors. And uh, so he, he demanded perfection he helped you achieve it if if you could, um, and certainly everybody who worked for him loved him, feared him, because he was he was a curmudgeon and he was apt to play a trick on you at any time, um, which kept you on your toes. And it was just a great honor to be directed by him and to be considered a, a member of his family because he had his family of actors that. As everybody knows, he used in practically every film he made. You'll see many of the same faces. Exactly. And one thing I want to mention, you said young people might not know, like John Wayne or William Holden. A friend of mine's 10-year-old son, Layton, is a big, big John Wayne fan. And, oh, really? Uh, yes, he is. And oh, he, he watched The Horse Soldiers many times. And he rewatched it because he. Uh, I told his dad I was going to be interviewing you, and he's like, "You were in a John Wayne movie." And he's like, "And I said, if you had a question for me to ask you, I would ask you." And so he rewatched the movie, and his question is, which I think everybody always wonders too. So I can't blame him for this question because to me, it's the question I was going to ask you also anyway. What was it like working with John Wayne? What was John Wayne like? That's a wonderful question. I'm glad he asked it. Um, working with John Wayne was was the most wholesome, wonderful experience because he was exactly the same person that you saw on the screen that you liked so much and was your hero. That's who he was in life. He, we would when we were in Natchitoches, we would be out out riding these horses from like six in the morning until six at night, till the sun went down. And we would come back, we were caked with mud, we were tired, the horses had been swimming in a swamp with moccasins, snakes, and I mean, it was, it was exhausting. He would come back to the motel, which was out with boonies in, around Natchitoches. There was nothing around us, and all of us, we were hungry and tired. We wanted to eat, 
go to bed, get up the next day and go back and do it again. And he would come back and there would be a little crowd of, like you see fans outside a restaurant or something when a celebrity is there. And they they were all ages. I mean, they'd be young and some of them were senior people. And there was a young boy one day and he said, Mr. Wayne, I, I have a question. And Duke, as we all called him, said, what's that? And he said, well, you know, I'm not quite 16 yet, so I can't drive my car without a passenger or the family car. And whenever I ask my dad, he always turns me down. He doesn't, he doesn't go with me and nobody goes with me, so I can't learn to drive the car. And so John Wayne looked at him for a long moment and he said, well, when was the last time you offered to wash that car? And the boy thought about it. And then he said, and furthermore, when was the last time you told your dad you love him? There was a long silence, and this boy said, oh, thank you. And then a few few days later, the boy came back, and he said, it worked. It really worked. I'm going to go Saturday night, whatever. And that's the kind of man he was. He always had time for people. And it didn't matter who you were or how old you were. He had time for you. And he had he treated his own family that way. His family loved him, his memory, and they loved him when he was alive. I mean, his sons adored him and they worshipped him and he deserved it because he was he just was as real in life as he was on the screen. He was that man. And he never disappointed me. I in all of the years after we made the film, I would see him and be with him, and he never changed. He was that's who he was. That's amazing because I yeah. I never heard that 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 story. And um, you know, here he's imparting wisdom. You know, because he had sons, and so he knew how to tell the boy to help him because this is what he would want expect his sons to do to, for him. Exactly, exactly. And it was such good advice. It was advice that he could apply immediately. The boy understood. He got it. I think but that's the way he was. And I, I still see Pat Wayne, one of his sons, and uh, we always talk about his father, and he always has a tear in his eye because he just had the greatest dad of all time. He had a great one. And uh, I've met Patrick Wayne, and mm-hmm. I, know, I know how much he loved his dad, you know, and, and it's, it's just amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the wonderful thing is, and you wonder where are they today, that so many people today are relying on, I don't know, drugs and TikTok and life is fast and it's, 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 you're susceptible to a lot of things. And he was the biggest star in Hollywood, but he was a straight arrow. He was exactly what he was, who he was. And he was a great example, a hero to young people. And I just don't know how many heroes we have today where I'm constantly seeing somebody disappoint people because they make a mistake. You know, and he, he really lived what he was. I think it's, it's, it's like everything. Everybody makes mistakes. But nowadays, I think the mistakes are more um, hyped up, more, more emphasized. 
and it's, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, we're, but we're all human. So it's just, there's oh, not going to be anybody that's going to get through without making an error. And it's, it's a hard standard to right. try to attempt to hold somebody to. But you know, there's a saying, and I hear it every now and then, and I think of, of Duke Wayne, and that is do the right thing. Just stop, blink, and do the right thing. And I just think that was such good advice. Now, that was, as long as you know what the right thing is. <laughs> well, that, that is true, and um, I think sometimes it's just a matter of taking that time to think about what is the right thing. And then mm-hmm. if you take that pause and think before mm-hmm. you react, I think you're more likely to have a better outcome with your decision-making process. Yeah, exactly. And when someone you know, offers you an intriguing opportunity and you look at it and you think, oh, I'm not sure that's the right thing, then don't do it. You know, just be strong and have the conviction that maybe you're right. So take a moment, pause, and think about it. My husband sat our kids down, and I thought it was such good advice. And it's it's very basic, but it applies to all of these things. And that is that when you learn to drive, when you come to a stop sign, before you start up, look both ways and then count to three. And you think of how many accidents happen today because people, you know, they just are in a hurry and they jump out into the intersection before they look both ways, count to three, and then go. And a lot of people just aren't paying attention to their awareness and their surroundings. Yeah, and, and if you're in a neighborhood, you never right. know when a child's going to be running out there chasing a ball. Oh, exactly. Or, or a dog yeah. or whatever. You know, it's just, it's always good to be there. Yeah. Yeah, yes, it's, it's, it's 25 Miles per hour. You, you can you can drive faster than that, but think about the repercussions that could come from it. And oh, absolutely. Yeah. So we certainly have that in Los Angeles where we have, you know, so many cars. that people drive fast and they have critical accidents. So, but it's, it's true of everything in life. If you just take that moment, think about it, and then act. Don't jump into things. You know, in a hurry. Which I think you, you've established so far with your career. You, you're actually a prime example of doing that where, you know, you're, you didn't jump right in. You, you've taken time to reflect and and things still worked out great for you. It doesn't mean it's going to work out great for everybody, but it, it's going to work out in the end. Mm-hmm. Where you should be happy with your decision. And you, right. And you had you got to work with John Ford right after this film. And, and John mm-hmm. Ford... There's two movies of his of his I really love. I love I think his best movie, in my opinion, is The Searchers. Oh yeah, everybody loves that. With John Wayne doing his best acting, it, 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 in mm-hmm. my opinion, ever. And then there's Sergeant oh. Rutledge, and they're very similar in theme. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. So, what was it like working in Sergeant Rutledge? Because you got to work. I mean. For people, for listeners, don't know it deals with um, uh, discrimination and stuff like that, just like the searchers did. The searchers dealt with um, racism and Native American. This one de- deals with it with the African American community, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, I think they're two very important films. And you got to work with Woody Strode. I mean, that that is just an awesome name for a Western hero. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, he and he was such a wonderful man. But we had the UCLA football team too in that picture, Rayford Johnson, and uh, it was uh, 
it was an, both films were an interesting experience in discrimination. Uh, Althea Gibson, who was the famous tennis star, Althea played my maid and uh, in The Horse Soldiers. Mm -hmm. She couldn't go on location with us, and that was 1959, so 1960, and uh, she wasn't allowed to stay in the same hotel. She couldn't, she couldn't go to the restaurants with us. Uh, so she stayed in Hollywood, and they shot all of her scenes here. Uh, but it would have been so much more wonderful for us, authentic authenticity of having her there uh, in the actual setting rather than make-believe setting here, and also just the fun social part of it. I loved her, and we were such good friends. And it just broke my heart that she couldn't go with us. Uh, in Sergeant Rutledge, you've got Rayford Johnson, star football player, Woody Strode, they had to stay in another hotel away from us. And we were in the four corners. And the hotel that we stayed in, the cast and the crew, uh, they weren't allowed to. So they had to stay in another hotel and be bussed to the set every day. And you just you look at that and you think, what was that about? It was, it was, it was sad. It was hurtful. And... Uh, certainly accomplished nothing but hurt. So I'm so glad we've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. So. Oh, I agree. And it's just, it's, but it's just, it breaks your heart, you know, um, to know that that's the way things were then. Mm -hmm. And we've, like you said, we've improved greatly compared to then, mm -hmm. but it's just, it's just, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to imagine yeah. Um, what everybody went through yeah, those time periods. Yeah, exactly. So, but it was, it was, it certainly things are changing and that for the better. So, but on the film, you got to work with, like we said, with Woody Strode and Jeffrey Hunter. And what, mm -hmm. what, what, what was, the, what was it like? Cause you had John, this was your second go. You know, I guess you could say you were, you're, you're on your way to becoming a John Ford regular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What was that? Well, like? it was it was it was terrific because you remember the family, and uh, God, we had Billy Burke, who uh, say that name to young people and they really don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but Billy Burke was such a wonderful actress, and she she was oh God, I don't know how old she was at that point, probably eighty something, and her daughter would bring her to the set. And set her up, you know, in her dressing room and things when we were back at Warner Brothers. And she would come in and kind of be a little confused, uh, which was part of the character she always played. Uh, anybody who saw Wizard of Oz, she's the good, the good fairy godmother mm -hmm. in Wizard of Oz with Judy Garland. Anyway, she she would come in and she was. Kind of, you know, in the morning she would come in and, oh, it's so good to see you and so on. And you'd think, oh, God, hope she knows her lines. Well, when she got in front of the camera and the light went on and she knew it was the take, that the camera was really rolling and it wasn't a rehearsal, she was brilliant. And we all stood and watched her and we all said, well, she's stealing the movie. <laughs> Every scene you were in with her, she just took it right away from you. She was fabulous. And we had 
we had a, an actor uh, in the movie. His name was Ty Harden. So he would come in every morning, and you'd hear him come to the to the stage door, and he'd walk in, and he'd be looking in the mirror at himself, and he would say, "Hello, darling, looking beautiful today." And he was looking at himself. So one day we put Billy Burke in the chair, and he walked in, and he just walked in, looked at himself in the mirror, and said, "Hello, darling." looking beautiful today, and so on, and he walked out. He didn't know he was talking to Billy Burke, which was wonderful. But anyway, it, it, that was a great movie, and it was it was wonderful to work with Jeffrey Hunter. He was such a nice man, such nice, again, a family man, uh, certainly respectful and good actor, and just delightful to be with. So... I was always lucky with my leading men. They were, they were terrific. Now, moving down the road a little bit with your films, you, you then worked a couple of movies with Samuel Fuller, and I, I watched for the first time recently, The Naked Kiss. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, that was a really great performance by you. I mean, because you're playing a, a prostitute who's trying to go to the straight and narrow, but still hardened by the life prior. And, but the love that you showed for children, because your character couldn't have any children and the relationship you ended up with, because I don't want to spoil it for the people who have never seen it. And um, the relationship you ended up with, with um, your fiance and how that all changed, but it had, it had, had some nice twists and turns in there. Uh, I, I thought it was amazing. What was it like working with Samuel Fuller and doing the Naked Kiss? Well, he was the opposite of John Ford. <laughs> he was Sammy was raw. He was uh, unpolished. He was absolutely wonderful and exciting, and willing to take chances. And uh, he was he was just a character. And he even had a, a pistol that had blanks in it, but every now and then he would shoot that off. And in the studio, you'd hear this gun go off. And I asked him, I said, why do you do that? He said, get your attention. And it did. It certainly concentrated the minds when he shot that gun off. (laughs) You know, today they wouldn't allow him to do that. But anyway, he he was creative. He wrote the story. He wrote the script. He directed it. And he helped produce it. So he was an all-around talent. And as I say, unschooled, um, ex-newspaper man from New York, a poor little boy who practically, you know, by selling newspapers, was able to keep his family going when he was tiny. And, uh, and he became a very successful movie director and certainly has a huge cult following. And when the film was offered to me, I just was so happy to work with him. I had done one film before that with him, and then which was called Shock Corridor. Mm-hmm. And he was he was very interesting. He was courageous in the sense that he would attack a subject that was very sensitive, such as the the subject of of the naked kiss, which was pedophilia. And uh, people didn't talk about it then. It was sort of a, it wasn't a buzzword yet. It was sort of something that 
people whispered about, but no one felt they had the courage to actually attack it and maybe dramatize it. And he did. And in fact, he did a, a film called White Dog that really sent him to Europe in exile for about 20 years uh, away from Hollywood because it was just shocking to see that film and to hear that subject matter on film. But he was he's highly respected. If I go to a young film director's office to discuss a project, when I sit down, they don't say, tell me about John Ford, who's great, great film director. They say, tell me about Sam Fuller. Mm-hmm. And it's, so he has this wonderful following in the younger filmmakers. And uh, even what he did at the beginning of Naked Kiss, the opening scene when, when you all this action is taking place, it's a, a woman hitting, beating up a man, and it's actually the character I played. And they shot it with a shoulder camera, not a stationary camera. And it was like the second time that had ever been done. So it gives the film this incredible opening where, which I guess if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I know. You know how to use a purse. Action. (laughs) Pardon? You know how to use a purse in that movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's, uh, he, he was not afraid to be innovative and be the first to do something and try it, even though he might be criticized for it. He was courageous and did it. And so he was highly respected and so interesting to work with. And the interesting thing was that practically every day, John Ford would come and visit the set, and he wanted to watch him work. And when Sammy's memorial was at the Directors Guild here in Hollywood, uh, the biggest picture out in the lobby was a picture of John Ford with his arm around Sammy because he, he loved him so much and loved what he was doing and the courage that he had and the creative aspects that he was bringing to film. Uh, So it was interesting to see how Pappy Ford loved him and respected him. And the first time that that John Ford came to the set, he called me and said, I'd like to come visit tomorrow, and I'll come at tea time. And I said, oh, terrific, because he always served tea on the set at about 4 o'clock, and it would be high tea. We'd have sandwiches and cookies and and scones and so it was it was a high tea. So I went in and told Sammy Fuller. I said John Ford wants to come and visit this afternoon, and uh, he wants to come for tea. And Sammy looked at me and he said, "Tea? What's tea?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, you know, you have a pot and you have some tea bags or leaves of tea or whatever, and you make tea, and you have some cookies." And he said, I don't have anything like that. I said, don't worry. I'll, I'll get it from my house. I'll bring it over. I'll make the tea. But he wants to come for tea. So that was Sammy's first experience with tea on a set. And he asked John Ford, he said, why did you serve tea every day? And Pappy Ford said, because people get tired at four. And you give them a little sugar, a little tea, and they'll work until six or maybe seven. So that was his his little secret behind not only the refinement and the joy of stopping and having the tea, but also 
there was there was a method to his madness, and that was to give people energy. A happy set is a is a working set. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. A happy set is a working set. You know, if, if people are well fed and happy, they're they'll they'll work and sure. do everything for you. That's right. Their energy level is up. So, and somebody else who was like that was, I was fortunate enough to go to Broadway and work with Ewell Brenner. And uh, we did the King and I revival in 1979, uh, 77 or 79. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he he would have tea during the show, and he would have cookies. So, and he and he knew that kept his energy up. So before the shall we dance scene, he he had a little a little repast. And, and speaking of the stage. What was it like as an actor, as an actress, performing in, if, if you can explain to listeners, the differences of performing to a movie camera and when you're on the theater, the stage? Well, there's a big difference. In a movie, you shoot the movie, then you wait for probably a year before they get all of the editing and the film and they cut out maybe your best scene ends up on the cutting room floor or whatever. So you really don't have the control over a film that you have over a stage performance. Because when the show starts, you're in the wings, you step on stage, it's your journey all the way through. What is accomplished that night is what you give to it, what you what you create. And at the end of the evening you know what you created. You know you get the audience appreciation, the applause. Uh, so it's a totally different experience psychologically and certainly in your performing because in a movie, they can reshoot a scene. They can go back and perfect it until it's, it is perfect. On stage, you don't have anyone to help you. Once you do a scene, that's done. And while you're there, you have to help yourself. Mm-hmm. There's no one who can say, cut, we'll go back and do that song again, and maybe maybe you'll be in tune on that on that note, or whatever. It's an immediate experience, and there was an actor, Pat Hingle, who was an actor's actor, we all respected him highly and loved him, and he said it better than anybody, because, you know, they constantly joke about people being performing monkeys, uh, jokingly. Yeah. And he says, maybe we're performing monkeys on stage, but the thing we get at the end is we get our peanut right away. And I thought, you know, it really does kind of give you an example of what it is. You walk out for your applause, and it's immediate, and it's uh, euphoric. It's a, it's a wonderful experience. And in The King and I, certainly when Ewell Brenner walked out and the gongs would clang and and the king walked out. The audience hopped to their feet. And uh, so it was always an exciting, every night was exciting and a great performance. I remember when I interviewed Elizabeth Shepard, and we were talking about theater, and she said each evening's performance is tailor-made to that night's audience. That's right. It's a different audience. Different bodies are in those seats. You're 24 years, I mean, 24 hours older. Uh, the orchestra is 24 hours older. There, 
nobody is the same as they were the night before. We're all new people. And so it's a new performance. And no two audiences are the same. Each night I would stand in the wings and you could feel, you could just feel the excitement, the hum of the voices as they came into the theater and sat down in the seats and then the sudden quiet when it's about to start. And then the overture would begin. It just, it was, it was totally different, a different challenge every night. And people say, don't you get bored doing you know, the same thing, saying the same things and singing the same songs? No, because you're different. The audience is different. It's a different experience and it's exciting every time. Never boring. And what was it like working with the, that, the Joel Brenner, who will always be the king? I mean, it's just mm-hmm. the king and I. I mean, he, he loved that character. He performed it more times than I can ever, ever imagine. So many different revival showings and everything. And he always was improving, as you said, day after day. What was it like working with him? Because it's it just the passion that he had for his craft. Well, a passion for his craft certainly explains it. He was criticized many times in the press for being a perfectionist, for being difficult, for being demanding. And I found in my three years with him that I never saw him be demanding. Uh, I never saw him be difficult or temperamental, except when it really mattered. And that was because he gave 150% 150% every night. He felt the audience bought a ticket. They deserved the best show that he could perform. And he loved performing. And so he he was never demanding about anything that was frivolous or not important. And he, if somebody, if an actor got to the theater a half hour and threw their makeup on and ran on stage and thought they were going to do a 100% performance, he knew. And he would let them know that he did know, that you can't prepare, you can't be ready in 30 minutes and then run on stage. And he was there at, in the theater at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I was there at 5 o'clock. We would meet, we would have tea. There we go. We would have our tea and we would talk about the performance the night before and what we hoped to accomplish this performance, and if either of us had an idea, uh, a little something, a discovery we made the night before, we would try it if we thought it had value, and we'd try to kind of put it in the performance. So you were constantly polishing and and perfecting what you were doing. I found dealing with Ewell, however, uh, it had to be his idea. He was very much the king. <laughs> So if I wanted to get an idea or a suggestion into the play that night, I would always tell him, do you remember in rehearsal when you suggested trying that Mrs. Anna came from left to right or did whatever? And he'd say, no, tell me about it. And so then I would tell him what his suggestion was, which wasn't. And he would say, well, let's try it. But if I went to him and said, you know, I have an idea, and I would like to, then he would find a reason maybe not to do it, because it wasn't his idea. <laughs> so in many ways, I found that being Mrs. Zana to the king 
in real life really helped in getting things kind of sometimes the way I wanted them instead of the way he wanted it. <laughs> so, but he was, he, he, as long as you gave all you had to give, he loved you and he loved actors and he loved being there, loved being on stage, which made it an absolute privilege to be with him. And as Mrs. Anna, he had me on a pedestal. I couldn't have asked for more respect, more more joy, more appreciation when I did something really well. It was always my job to get the audience into a standing ovation before he came out. And he always said, now I taught you how to do this. So <laughs> when you walk out, they'll pop out of their seats. And every time I did get them out of their seats before he did, he would be full of joy and compliments and look what I taught you, but look what you did. So he was he was a joy. And I remember one time when he was in the middle of summer in New York and the air conditioning in the theater was so strong that it set off the for some reason set off the the alarm system in the theater and the audience immediately because this clanging happened and he never lost character. He just walked into the wings. He said, oh, this is on a, I have to fix. And he went into the, into the wings and he pulled the bells off of the wall of the, of the theater right there. He pulled them off put, and brought them out on stage, put them down and said, now, we continue. And he was always the king. And the audience howled. The audience applauded. And we went on. So... He was he was unpredictable, and that made him exciting. And he he was he just was delightful, and he had a delicious sense of humor. And we get the giggles on stage, and I'm a giggler, but it was up to me to keep the equilibrium and not both of us start giggling. But he would say something that would tickle him, and then he would turn over in his back and laugh as the king. And I would sort of have to be the school teacher and bring him. To Bring it back to, to sanity. So it was fun, and it was it was three years of joy. I loved him. I'm amazed because I listened to an interview that he did with Bill Boggs, and listen, it's on YouTube. Bill Boggs, the Yul Brenner interview. It's about 19 minutes long. A lot of the stuff you just said about the 24 hours and all these other things, he repeats mm -hmm. in that interview. Mr. Oh, really? Yes. And Mr. Boggs asked him, what was it like working with Constance Towers and the King and I? And I got a treat for you because, listeners, I asked Miss Towers about this earlier, and she had never heard this. I'm going to play a one-minute no. excerpt where Yul Brenner is just talking about working with you. Constance Towers is a consistent performer. She's a marvelous singer, first of all. She looks absolutely beautiful. She has what I think is going to become really explosive star quality. Mm. Really explosive star quality. I think she's a very, very exciting performer. And when she goes on as Mrs. Anna, you believe this is Mrs. Anna from beginning to end. She never lets that down. Mm. And the relationship that she has to play with me is a very difficult one because we're really constantly in the position of each other and yet underneath there is a kind of underlying layer of, of of love story that is always there mm. throughout the play. 
and she manages to maintain both the conflict with the king and the opposing of her principles against his and yet admiring him as a man. Uh, yes. And she's really, she's extraordinary. She is an extraordinary. She's an extraordinary. I saw her a long time ago. So that, that was a minute excerpt from the interview. And I, what did you think? This is what... My gosh, I've never heard that. What a joy. Oh, I've never heard that. Oh, my goodness. All I'll do is I'll email to you um, the link to the YouTube. Oh, uh, and that way you can listen to the whole 19-minute part. But it's just... I found that and I was just like, oh, I got, I was going to write it down. I was like, you know, instead of me just trying to do the voice, of, trying to repeat the words of Yul Brenner, who can repeat but, but Yul Brenner? <laughs> oh my gosh, that is such a thrill. I've never heard that. Amazing. How wonderful. It, it, he was just, he was, it was just a wonderful thing. I wish I could have seen both of you performing The King and I. I can only see a small smidgen where I believe you both did Shall We Dance for a Telephone that's on YouTube. Yes, it was also. for the Jerry Lewis. Yeah. And that was wonderful. Oh, what a treat. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for playing that. Oh, oh you're welcome. I would love to have that. I'll, I'll, like I said, we'll take, I'll take care of it when I'm done. I'll email it to you right when we're done this. Oh, thank you. Now, just what before. What a I don't know what else you could do to top that, but I'll try. Okay. <laughs> but you worked with another legend on stage. I mean, she was, I consider her one of the top female actresses ever, Lillian Gish. Oh. Uh-huh. And I mean, I've seen her work in the silent air and I saw her all the way up to the whales of August. I never had the fortune of ever seeing her on stage. Um, what was it like doing Anya with Lillian Gish? Uh, well, that was my first Broadway show. And it was the musical version of Anastasia, which is the story of the woman who believed that she was the daughter, the surviving daughter of the assassination of the Tsar of Russia. And Lillian was playing the Dowager Empress. Uh, the grandmother, and she, you know, she it went it went because she was such a star in silent film, and Lillian was always the fragile, delicate little bird that was on an ice floe, you know, going to the, her dangerous death in a silent film, and she was anything but that. She was one of the strongest, most. Uh, vital women, and she had to be when we when we did Anastasia, when we did Anya together. She was in her 80s, and she was always dressed in her costume, in the wings, as the curtain went up on the first act. She didn't make an entrance until the second act. And I asked her one day, I said, Lillian, why, why are you sitting in the wings on this chair for the whole first act. And she said, my darling, you must be prepared. You must be here on time. And you never know what might happen. So she said, you have to be prepared. So no matter what happened, she was ready to go on and continue the show. But she was, she was so delightful. And she believed in eating right. 
she believed in in living your life right. Um, she was just a, as close to perfection as anybody I've, I've ever met. And I loved her. And the, when we were in our, our, what would we call it? They, they call it the gypsy uh, performance. And that gypsy means all of the, the uh, dancers and, and performers around Broadway. They come to this one performance before you open, so you have a chance to run the show in costume, with the set, with everything, but with an understanding audience, which is your fellow workers. And so that was that performance. And Lillian had, because we were Russians, and we had these great, wonderful Pat Ziprot costumes. She was a Tony Award winner many times after she did Anya. And so we had fur hats and collars on our coats and these elaborate, beautiful fabrics. And Lillian was, it was near the end of the performance, and she, as the dowager, had now accepted my character as the real Anastasia. And so it was sort of triumphant entry down a curving staircase onto the stage. So you saw us come down, and then we alighted on on stage. And so Lillian started at the top of the stairs, leading the group down, and she tripped. And I saw her go end over, I mean, top over bottom, down. She tumbled down, probably turned two or three times, it seemed like forever. And she landed on her feet on the stage. Her hat was in place. Her coat was buttoned. I mean, she was, and her, I told her later, I said, I was so grateful your wig was still on your head. And she said, you are really a naughty girl. <laughs> but I didn't worry about her. I didn't at that moment think, oh my God, maybe she's broken something. All I could worry about was that her wig and her big fur hat stayed in place and her jewels were all right. And she landed on her feet. And so that was that was the, the delicate little girl of silent films going down the ice floe. I mean, she really was strong. And if we went upstairs, she was ahead of me, jumping up the stairs. She was she was remarkable. And she would make me brand muffins, bring them to the theater, and say, my dear, you must eat at least one of those a day. So I did. And uh, But she was wonderful. And she, she was so anxious to be perfect and uh, to present a perfect performance and she did every time but it was yeah it was a good thing it was a dress rehearsal but working with her was wonderful we remained friends wonderful for me and such a treat to know her over the years and you know she she certainly had made a fortune during her life and she had charity things that she did that no one knew that Lillian Gish was financing certain things but she was even after she died, she had someone who would search out a cause that was, like today, it would be homelessness or maybe immigrants or uh, orphans or something. But she was always looking for for something, and so she prepared her estate even so that after she died, it went on to help people, people in need. And she was wonderful. She's a wonderful actress. I mean, I never got, like I said, never got to meet her. I would have, if I had a time machine, can go back. She'd be one person I would love to just sit and talk to and 
listen to uh, uh, because she's done so she did so much and experienced mm-hmm. so much. It's just it's that's one of the reasons I do these interviews with people is to get these stories recorded because you know time passes by and sometimes the stories get lost. Yeah, that's right. Well, you walked into her apartment, which was a large apartment on the east side of Manhattan, way over First Street, I think, First Avenue. And it was where the bridge goes up, which was the 59th Street Bridge. And in those buildings that are there uh, off of, I think it's First, maybe it's York. Um, anyway, she had a big apartment. And you walked into the living room. And it, 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 one apartment to the floor. So when you stepped off the elevator, you were in her apartment. And her piano had many, many, many photographs on the piano. And it was like looking at a a life history of Lillian Gish and a life history of film and a life history of silent film. And D.W. Griffith as a young man. You know, I mean, it was it was just mind-blowing. And I would stand there and look at those pictures and want to hear a story, and there was a story about each one. So knowing her was was so wonderful. And, you know, I'm always amazed when I go into a young filmmaker's office, and you mention Lillian Gish, and they don't know who that was. They haven't bothered to go back and research all of that rich, wonderful history. And those people were pioneers. And bright, and uh, Mary Pickford. Mary Pickford lived across the street from me. She had Pickfair, and I had I lived up in, in Beverly Hills, and I had a giant collie dog named Hubert. And Mary Pickford, these were in her very last year, like months of her life, and she was bedridden, but she would sit in her bedroom in the window, and she would say, would you send Hubert down, please? And so my big collie dog would go down and run on Pickfair's estate. And we'd take him down, and so that was his morning run. That was his dog park, was Pickfair. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, and, and I had the privilege of being in New York, and Mary Pickford, who had as all of her biographies have told, I mean, so it's not a secret that she had problems with alcohol. And she had been someplace where she was totally dried out, totally um, cured at that moment. Uh, Not cured, but... but, uh, On the wagon. Not under the influence of anything. So anyway, she, she was in the hotel and I was in the hotel. She called me and I spent an afternoon with her and I saw how brilliant she was. She was, and this is the woman who founded, you know, United Artists and mm-hmm. married the Douglas Fairbanks. And you just think of the history that was there. And you could see where she was that brilliant and that smart. That a lot of films should be very thankful to Mary Pickford for what she did. So I had that privilege. I mean, I just look back on that and it all happened. So I feel very lucky. I'll, I'll, I'll say uh, you're lucky, and I'm jealous. You know, because just I wish I would have had a chance, <laughs> the chance to, you know, to do the same thing, have uh, an afternoon with uh, two of the greatest actresses ever, and 
you are so correct yeah. in that people, when you mention certain names, they don't know who you're talking about and, and those kind of things. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's sad, but I will say this with my children, they're, they're all in their um, 19 to 26 age range. And yeah. um, they know they're older movies and they, and they know the people in them. And my daughter has a theater degree um, in, in, in stage. Oh, isn't that great? Not as a, you know, behind the scenes, but so she knows her stage history also. And it's just, it's, it's mm-hmm. important to have that to pass on. Oh, know. absolutely. Oh, I compliment you because you've enriched your children's lives. That's wonderful. Well, it, I think I think every parent, when they enjoy certain things, you want to try to pass that same on to them. They might not enjoy it as much as you do, but mm-hmm. you never know. Sometimes they will. Like, you know, one, you know, and, and, and some of them like certain things better than others. But the thing is, is, they all three have a love of either stage or um, I think all actually all three of them have a love of stage and they all have a love of, of movies, especially the, the more classical movies, but they enjoy the modern movies too. They just enjoy taking, mm-hmm. taking that journey. And That's they, wonderful. And they love to read. They're, 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 they're ferocious readers. <laughs> oh, isn't that wonderful? God, I think people have lost the, the joy and the art of reading. You know, there's just too many things to do it for you. That is, that is true, and it's mm-hmm. it's I don't know. There's something about curling up with a good book and you and just get lost in that world. Or I reading, know, isn't it great? And I know Lillian Gish. I researched her recently, and she has a biography out, an autobiography, and I want to get that book. Mm-hmm. I saw it's like it's you know I saw the pricing of it, you know, and I'm going to get it because I'm just like I got to read more about Lillian Gish and why not read it from her voice. Mm-hmm. Now. Well, she was she was she was an extraordinary lady, and lived a long, full life, and she was active right up to the last minute. Which I think is the best way to live life and just enjoy and oh, absolutely, doing the thing you love to do. Now we mentioned movies, stage. But we also said TV, and I just want to go mm-hmm. into your TV career a little bit because. There's you, people know you for different things, <laughs> you know, cause you know, you have those people are going to know you from your movies. People are going to know you from stage. I'm sure there's a whole heck of a lot of people that know you from a certain couple of TV shows, which you'll get to in a second. But what, what's, what's it like going, you know, cause in TV, when you're acting now, unlike the movies where you might have a month or two months, you know, you have plenty of time to work on the scenes and work on the role the TV where mm-hmm. it's a weekly thing to where you did soaps where it's daily. Well, I've been known to take my script to a dinner party for a TV show, for a soap opera, certainly. that uh, I had to do the next morning, and I would sit on it and during dinner, and I was hoping that through a process of osmosis, <laughs> somehow I, the lines would somehow be there when I needed them the next morning. Uh, it's it's a, a great teaching ground for young people. And I think it's just great for older people because it makes you use your brain because there is the certainty that when that red light goes on, you better know what your words are. So it's it's a totally different experience. You don't have any joy of relaxation or confidence that if you don't have it today, you'll have it tomorrow. Uh, It's immediate. And it's great. 
it's just the, the greatest experience in the world. I used to say that I think you could send me a Broadway script for a play on Friday and say you have to open Monday night. And I'd say, oh, no problem. I'll learn it over the weekend. Because your brain just learns to to uh, absorb the words and you have it mm-hmm. out of desperation, if nothing else. I mean, you get used to. I, get, I mean, you get used to training your brain, and, and the brain is a muscle. And the more you use it, the better it's going to be. Sure, that's right. Well, last night I saw. I happened to go to hear Jim Burroughs, who's a director, and he created Friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 what's the one in the bar in Boston? Oh, um, oh, oh, the bar. Oh, cheers. Yes, cheers. Um, so and, uh, all of those shows. And he he did Frasier, which is, I did the opening show of Frasier with him, and I was Frasier's music teacher and the lady with whom he had his first sexual experience. And, uh, and so Jim Burroughs directed that, and then I did Caroline in the City for him after that and several others. But anyway, we were talking last night about, you know, learning, and I was reminiscing with him that when I did Frasier, I only had half of the script, and on Friday, you rehearse during the week, and then Friday, because sitcoms are different, nighttime shows, than the soap opera. So here you come in, and on Monday, you have a read, the table read, and then they break it down on Tuesday and Wednesday. You're blocking and uh, learning the show, and then by Friday, they have the audience come in, and then you they film it, and you perform it before the audience. So you've had a good run of four days running up to the day when you actually perform it for a live audience. And this particular script, they didn't have the last scene. And so I had everything but the last scene, but the last scene happened to be the biggest laugh of the show, and it was my scene. And I didn't have it. So that morning, I got pages, Friday morning, I got pages that were warm. They had just come out of the printer, and it was that scene. And I had to go in the ladies' room and learn it, and then go in and with an audience perform it. And that was probably, I think, one of the most challenging moments I had from memory, because comedy is so so demanding in the sense that you better, you really, it has a rhythm. It has, you can't take a dramatic pause mm-hmm. and if you're going for a laugh. You have to set the laugh up, and then you have to deliver the line that gets the laugh. And if you don't do that with a certain rhythm, you don't get the laugh. And so I had to learn it, know that I had the rhythm, and do it for the audience. So I told him, I said, you gave me probably the the most frightening and most challenging experience, but probably the most satisfying one. But it was uh, it was fun to see him. He's such a great. He's the great comedic of any sitcom that's been on the air. He's, he has been responsible. He's just been incredible. Was, so Jim Burroughs, he has a book out. I think it's called Directed by James Burroughs. And it's a fun read. I'll have to look into that. And I just find it interesting that with your background, live theater, soap operas, you, 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 you were probably the most prepared person prior going into that to be able to pull that off, you know, with um, 
learning it quickly and being right. able well, to Right. Well, I've always, always had to use my use my memory so that it does, unfortunately, I have, I have a good memory. So it's very helpful at times. With, with TV, before I hit the soap operas, there's one TV show I have to ask you about that you guest starred in five episodes because it's it's one of my favorite TV shows growing up watching in reruns, and I have all the DVDs of it. What was it like working on Perry Mason for multiple episodes? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing just the other day, uh, I, I guess getting ready for this convention, the nostalgia convention coming up next week, that in Perry Mason, they were so wonderful. I loved doing that show, and I loved Raymond Burr. Oh my gosh, what an actor. And what a fun guy. And I always was the innocent lovely lady of, of the manor house. And at the very end, I would be in the box in the courtroom, and I did it. And I don't think I did one Perry Mason where I wasn't the guilty person at the end of it. So I, I guess I just didn't look like I'd done it, so it surprised the audience at that time that I was the one who did it. I always killed my husband. I told my husband, be careful. I'm very effective. <laughs> as long as Perry Mason's not not representing um, somebody else, I'm going to get away with it too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it was Perry Mason was fun, and it was a formula kind of show. And uh, Raymond Burr was superb, and he had so much legal language in the courtroom to to uh, say as the character of Perry Mason that they, they finally got a prompter for him. And he was the most effective actor I've ever seen with a prompter. You had no idea that he was reading it. And yet, of course, it, it helped him. There's an example of doing a show every week, a different show, and you've got to learn all of that dialogue. And it just was more than anybody could do. So they, they brought in a prompter, and he was able to do it, but you never, never knew he was reading off of the prompter. I, I never knew that. I mean, I, I've, I've seen those shows yeah. countless times and his, I mean, he was Perry Mason. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, the, oh, he, yeah. he was Absolutely. the role. And I've seen him in other things too, and he's excellent in those, but I mean, he's always going to be known as Perry Mason mm-hmm. forever. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he had a wonderful sense of humor. It's said about him, I didn't have a chance to ask him about it, but he was in the hospital. He was going to have abdominal surgery. And so they prepared him for the surgery and all of the, you know, the shaving, the stomach and all of that. And so they prepared him. And then when they wheeled him down to the OR, they wheeled him in and they took the sheet off. And somehow between the time they had prepared him for operation and they took the sheet off he had had a marker pen and written across his lower abdomen was do not open until christmas <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the kind of a sense of humor that he had and he was always always playing tricks on people so he was he was a wonderful delightful character and such an accomplished actor so I love doing those shows. That was fun. Well, that, that's the thing. Is, and I think 
everybody was everybody there was treated well and it, it, it had that you had against that family you know unit and the guest stars come in and mm-hmm. and no that was delightful yeah like a lot of preparation and they were ready and no the people and the cast the permanent cast on that show was wonderful so that was a that's a great memory i loved it there's two soap operas that most people from recent more recent years are probably going to know you for capital and general hospital and mm-hmm. in capital, I mean, I think you're, you're there virtually every episode. It seems like I've now I, I'll be honest. I'm mm-hmm. not a, so, I've never really watched soap operas um, except from them. I, I was, don't either. <laughs> so I have no idea, you know, for listeners, you know what the details, but I do know in capital, you worked with another actress who I just adored Caroline Jones. Who is that? I, I couldn't hear it. Caroline Jones. Oh, Carolyn. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, what a wonderful actress. Yeah. She was wonderful and could not have been more wonderful to work with. And, you know, she developed cancer and uh, knew she was dying. And she she worked until she couldn't work anymore. To be in a scene with her was being in a scene with a, with a true professional wonderful lady and just a great actress. I loved her. I knew her from the first day I came to California. I met her. And uh, throughout the years, we we would see each other infrequently. But when we did, it was always, you know, like good friends. And so having the chance to work with her was a special privilege for me because she was very special. Well, she was, and for me, I always remember her from the Adams family. So it's just, it's, oh yeah, right. <laughs> her signature role, yeah, that was wonderful. But it was fun to play in Capital. I played what I had played always before in my career, kind of the pure, driven snow lady who might one might have more temperament than the other, but basically they were good characters. And then I was asked if I would by my agent, if I would consider doing General Hospital, which was the role of uh, that Elizabeth Taylor had uh, originally created because of Tony Gary, who was uh, a regular on the show, and he wanted, he wanted her, she wanted to do the show. So they made this character uh, for her. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mrs. Cassidyne. And so she came on the show for a week or two weeks or whatever. And then the the character kind of went away. And then 20 years later, they asked me if I would like to recreate the character. And I said, who's going to believe it? Because Elizabeth Taylor is tiny and perfect and brunette and beautiful. And I mean, she's totally the opposite of me because I'm tall, blonde, blue-eyed. And so we decided we just would say that she'd been sick for a long time and lost the color in her hair. (laughs) But it's it's interesting how audiences in soap opera will accept a change and uh, they're just ready to love you. They're just ready to accept you and take you for whatever you bring to the part. So I started playing Mrs. Cassidyne and uh, have had just the best time playing her because she's over-the-top evil, the richest woman in the world and has beautiful jewelry, beautiful clothes, yachts. And uh, if she has a scene with an actor, she walks out of his office and he's dead. 
So actor, actors always say, don't give me a scene with Helena because when she walks like that, I'm going to be dead. But uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed playing that. It's been challenging, and it was the opposite of anything I'd ever played before to play someone so evil. And I was afraid in the beginning. I thought, oh, I told my agent, I said, you know, people are going to hate me. And I'm used to being loved, and I'm going to be hated. And the first person who walked up to me said, you know, I just love to hate you. And I said, you don't mind that I'm doing these terrible things? They said, no, keep it up. Do something worse. <laughs> so so it's, been, it's been a wonderful experience. I just loved it. And I still come back. They have me come back, and I'm in somebody's dream. So they wake up, and they've had a nightmare because Helena was there. So it's been it's been a great fun thing, and I I still every now and then come back. Well, that's the great thing is you can't keep a good villain down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's been fun. I was gonna say, do you have time for me to ask you about two other things? Okay, quick. Oh. Okay. Um, one of them is is there's one other movie I wanted to ask you about, and it was one you did just a few years ago. And I think a lot of people don't know about it. I didn't know about it until I watched it. And that's the storyteller that came out in 2018. Right. Yes. And th- that, that was a, a script that was handed to me. And I felt it was so necessary to, to make it because it is such a beautiful story of survival of a young girl and of, of love and acceptance, and something, an ingredient that seems to be missing a lot of the time in entertainment for younger people today. I loved everyone involved in the making of it. It was just a, that was a labor of love. And uh, I loved I loved it. it. And it's a wonderful little film. I saw it, and it's, it's one of those, you know, some yeah, some of the plot parts you can predict that what's going to happen here or there, but still, mm-hmm. it's the it's. I always look at it when a, when you watch a magician do a trick, and even if you mm-hmm. know how they're doing the trick, if they do it so well, you're still just mm-hmm. enthralled. And yes, you can right. you, you can predict yeah. some things, but the acting from the cast is done so well. The directing mm-hmm. is done well so well that you just enjoy the ride. And I, I was getting mm-hmm. misty eyed during different scenes. I was just like. Oh, this is this is getting to me, you know, and that kind of stuff. This is um, so it was really I I really enjoyed it. Oh, I'm so glad because I just it was that that was a labor of love too. It was just wonderful. And if the listeners, if you haven't seen it, it's it's free on Amazon Prime and some other streaming services. It's out there for mm-hmm. free with ads, so it's it's readily available. Please take time to watch the storyteller. It's it's an excellent film. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful because so sweet. And, and the other thing I want to ask you, so I'll be remiss, you, you've brought him up a couple times, John Gavin, your husband. Uh, yes. Amazing actor, but also did so many other things. President of the, the Screen Actors Guild, U.S. Ambassador to Mexico. Um, one time could have been James Bond. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't know what you wanted to talk with him about because, you know, there's so many different things. And I, I figured we could end, end the interview if you wanted to talking about your husband because people are probably going to wonder like, what was it like? What was he like? Well, he was, he was wonderful. 
and he was a very good actor. Uh, gosh, you know, Imitation of Life. There's so many wonderful films, Thoroughly Modern Millie, which is my favorite. And he enjoyed 20 years of making films. Then one day he, he felt that he had accomplished what he set out to accomplish. And President Ronald Reagan, who was a friend of his from, he was also a president of the Screen Actors Guild. And then my husband, a few years later, followed him and was president of the Screen Actors Guild. And they both were very affected in the job. Ronald Reagan called him and asked him, Ronald Reagan then was president of the United States, and asked him if he would accept the position of U.S. ambassador to Mexico. And of course, my husband was thrilled, and uh, it was the answer to a dream he'd had as a little boy, uh, and he, his mother was Mexican. And he'd sort of prepared himself for that role all of his life, and he spoke flawless Spanish, which is a huge asset for an ambassador to speak the language of the country to which you've been assigned. And he went to Mexico and really made a difference. He was a first, uh, not totally accepted as an ambassador because he was demanding mutual respect between Mexico and the United States. And he was reaching out a handshake of friendship, and uh, he accomplished that. And he did so many things for improving the relationship between Mexico and the United States. And he left there with many, many people who still stop me today and say he was the best U.S. ambassador Mexico ever had. And I do believe that because he made a difference. So... He came back into the business world and uh, was very successful uh, in business. So he really had three careers, which a lot of people don't have that chance. And he, he was accomplished and successful in all of them. So he was a delightful husband and a great father. So knowing him and being married to him has always been just a great privilege for me. It's been a great privilege for me to interview you, and I just want to let listeners know that if there's a question or something that I didn't ask, you can meet Ms. Towers September 15th for the 17th at Hunt Valley, Maryland at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention. She's going to be there all three days, and you should just come out and talk to her and get to meet her because I just I just covered a tiny chip of her career. There's a lot there. Well, you're wonderful, and you've obviously done your homework, which is such a pleasure to talk with someone who who asks questions that are fun to answer. So thank you, thank you for for allowing me to be with you on your show and uh, for forging a new friendship, and I look forward to meeting you. Oh, I can't wait. I mean, I'm, I'm going to meet you on the, uh, the 15th because I'm going to be there all three days, and it's just going to be... Terrific. Well, I look forward to it, and I look forward to everybody coming. It should be fun and uh, a lot of memories, a lot of nostalgia, other stars. and So it's, it's a fun, as I understand it, just a great three days. It's a great three days for a good cause. St. Jude's Hospital, all the money that they make 
after they cover their costs, goes to St. Jude's, and they do a charity auction where 100% they make from the auction goes to St. Jude's. Isn't that wonderful? I, I, I think you know, so. St. Jude's, they just do the best job. And all of, all of us want to help children, and this is an opportunity to do it. So that's a great privilege, too. But thank you. You're wonderful, and I enjoyed this so much. And I'll look forward to meeting anybody who comes to the convention. I hope everybody enjoyed the interview. I really enjoyed talking with Ms. Towers, and I can't wait to see her in just literally two days. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, it's nice when you get a chance to talk to people and be, develop a little bit of a friendship with them. And she is a remarkable woman, very classy. I can't wait to meet her. I'm hoping everybody has a good day. I want to thank everybody for listening. I really appreciate all of you. Uh, for people that are listening to this podcast for the first time, the reason we're called Diecast Movie Podcast is because we roll a die to decide what genre of movie we're going to discuss. So half our episodes are movie discussions and half our episodes are interviews. So if you go back and look at our archive, feel free to enjoy whatever episodes that fit your interest or sometimes try something that might be different and learn something new. Send us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or you can leave us a message on our Facebook page. I hope everybody has a wonderful day. And I'm going to let, leave this episode end with Shall We Dance from The King and I, sung by Constance Towers with Yoel Brenner. Very exciting when I was young. And I was at my first dance, seated on a small gilt chair, my eyes cast down, terrified that I'd be a wallflower. And suddenly, I saw two black shoes white waistcoats, a face, it spoke. We've just been introduced, I do not know you well, but when the music started, something drew me to your side. So many men and girls are in each other's arms, it made
Like this. 